Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Don't be rattled. Just be righteous. That's the theme of the passage we're coming to today in the book of 1 John. But first, I want to direct your attention to my book, Calm Your Anxiety, which is now available for purchase wherever you buy your books. These are really two books coming out at the same time. The first is a 208-page paperback entitled Calm Your Anxiety, Winning the Fight Against Worry. The companion volume is called Calm Your Anxiety, 60 Biblical Quotes for Better Mental Health. This is a smaller book that would be perfect to give to somebody else or for your own devotional use. So check out both books, now available anywhere and everywhere. Whenever I write a book, if possible, we also publish a separate study guide. Some people use the study guide individually, but it's most often used for small groups. Many Christian books have study guides, which are designed to help readers apply the content set forth in the main book. Sometimes I write the study guide for one of my books, and other times somebody on our staff does. But the purpose is always the same. We want people to think about and to assimilate the truth about which we are writing. We want it to be real and relevant to daily life. Well, I think that we can call the book of 1 John— this little epistle near the end of the Bible, a study guide for the Gospel of John. The Apostle John covers the same territory in both books. He emphasizes the same themes, and he makes the content of his Gospel relevant to daily life in his epistle. The relationship between the Gospel of John and the book of 1 John is really remarkable, but while the Gospel of John is narrative and doctrine, the book of 1 John is conducive to application. And so we are studying the study guide for the Gospel of John, as it were, this little epistle of 1 John, and today we're coming to chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. So let me begin by reading this, and then we'll take it apart together. 1 John, chapter 2, beginning with verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. 
Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates her a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Well, if you've been listening to the studies on this podcast, you know the proposed background. John wrote and began to circulate his gospel, the fourth gospel, which emphasizes the fact that Jesus is both God and man, and that he both died and rose again. But there were nominal believers in the church without any strong theological foundations. Some of these had strong Hellenistic backgrounds, and they held Gnostic-like views. They reacted to John's gospel criticizing him and rejecting him, and they probably said something like, he was a great man in his day, but he is now old and senile. These critics left the churches. There was a population drain from the churches in that area, which is very alarming, especially it was to those who stayed behind. They were berated and criticized by the deserters who planted doubts in the minds of those who remained true. They said, you're as foolish as John is senile. And so the people who remained in the churches were riddled with doubt and insecurity. That's why John wrote this letter, to give them answers and reassurances. That's why the book of 1 John is so rich in talking about the assurance which we have in all aspects of our salvation. Well, in this passage, Notice that John comforts and strengthens his people with three great biblical ideas. First, he told them that genuine Christians have an assured faith. The theme of this paragraph is in the first nine words, we know that we have come to know him. In a way, that's really the theme of this entire book. It is a theme that threads itself through every verse of 1 John. He said, we know that we have come to know him. Now, I want you to notice something about this. In the Gospel of John, the fourth gospel, the apostle states his purpose for writing at the end of the book. Well, he does the same thing in 1 John. And these two statements of purpose coming at the end of both books are very similar, and yet there is a distinct differentiation between them. In John chapter 20, Near the end of his gospel, verses 30 and 31, John wrote, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And at the end of 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, did you pick up the difference? John wrote his gospel so that we would have the information we need to believe in Christ and thereby to have eternal life. He wrote his first letter to those of us who have done that to reassure us that we may know that we have eternal life. And so here in our key verse, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, we read, We know that we have come to know him. One of my favorite gospel songs talks about this assurance. It says, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul, 
Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, keeping, helping, loving. He is with me to the end. I don't know if you know that song, but you might look it up because it's a very happy one to sing. This song was written by evangelist J. Wilbur Chapman, who came to Christ as a teenager. He decided to prepare for the ministry, but he began having doubts about his salvation. Was he really saved? Was he really going to heaven? Many Christians have these doubts at one time or another. Well, one time, Chapman had the opportunity to talk with the famous evangelist Dwight L. Moody, and he confessed to him that he had lost his assurance of salvation. He didn't know if he was really saved. Moody quoted John 5:24 to him, which says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Moody said something like, Have you heard the gospel? and believed in Christ like this? Chapman said, yes. Then do you have eternal life? That's just it, said Chapman. I don't know. Well, said Moody, see here, young man, who do you think you're doubting? In a flash, Chapman realized his lack of assurance was really the sin of doubting the plain spoken words of Christ. And from that moment on, he had assurance. And he went on to write this wonderful hymn that I love, Jesus, what a friend for sinners, Jesus, lover of my soul. The Apostle John has always been an excellent source of encouragement for people who are doubting their salvation. So here in verse 3 of the second chapter of his first epistle, he tells us that we can know that we know him. We can have an assured faith. But here's the other thing. We can go on to verse 3. The second truth here is that genuine Christians have an improved life. It says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. What does he mean by the commands? Does he mean that we have to perfectly keep the Ten Commandments? That doesn't seem to be what John means. He said, we know that we have known that we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands, but what commands are they? Well, the key to understanding this is to see how John uses this word command in the book of 1 John. He uses it a total of 14 times, and as we read through the book, it becomes clear that he uses it in a very specialized and limited way. So turn over one chapter and look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 21. John wrote, And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. In other words, on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross, we enter into an authentic relationship with the living God, and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. The Holy Spirit brings with him a divine, supernatural kind of love, which the Bible calls agape. Suddenly, we find ourselves beginning to be concerned with the physical, emotional, spiritual, and eternal needs of people around us. Let's go on to verse 4 and following. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love 
for God is truly made complete in them, and this is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus does. John doesn't say that when we come to Christ, all of our problems will be solved and all of our difficulties will go away. What he does say is that when we genuinely come to Christ, the process of learning to live as Jesus did is ignited within us. We begin this process of becoming more Christ-like. Let me show you another verse about this in the same book. Over in 1 John chapter 4, we have verse 17, and notice the last part of this verse. In this world, we are like Jesus. This is our improved life. We live as Jesus did. In this world, we are like him. The way that this works is gradual and simple. When we receive Jesus as our Savior, we make him the Lord of our lives, and the Holy Spirit comes into us, into our bodies, into our minds, into our souls. He takes the scripture we are reading, the truth we are absorbing, the sermons we are hearing, the problems we are facing. He takes all of these things and uses them to gradually create in us a Christ-like personality. If none of this has happened in your life, if none of this is happening, then you cannot have assurance of your salvation. But if we know that we know him, if we have trusted his name, and he is beginning to do a work of sanctification and transformation within us, that is a sign that indeed we do know him. As I researched this sermon, I found the testimony of a man named Larry Nimitz of Minnesota. When he was a boy, he gathered with his parents to watch a Billy Graham crusade on their black and white, white Zenith television set. I've remembered doing the same thing with my parents. As Larry listened, he believed, and he literally felt a bolt of electric power running through him. And from that point, he believed in God. He believed in Christ. But as a teenager and as a young man, he didn't live for the Lord. Years later, while reading a Christian book and listening to Christian messages on cassette tapes, he prayed once again to commit his self, his life, his heart to Jesus Christ with greater understanding. He said, this time, no bolt of power came upon me, and I wondered why. But after eight or ten months of listening to those tapes and studying the Bible and having asked Jesus to come into my heart, I realized that even without feeling that bolt of electricity, I was changing. I stopped swearing. I stopped going to bars to meet the ladies. And I couldn't get enough of studying the Bible. A deep desire began to grow within me to share the salvation message. Nibbets admitted that he didn't know and doesn't to this day if he was truly saved or not at the age of 12. But he gained assurance of salvation when he reconfirmed his decision and saw how the Lord was changing his habits. Well, look again at this, pa uh, this paragraph of Scripture. I think that's what it says. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands, which are to believe in him and to begin loving and living the way Jesus did. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him 
must live as Jesus did. So the truly born-again Christian has an, assure, uh, has an assured faith, but we also have an improving life. There should be a change, a transformation, a growth, a sanctification that is going on within us. We're not going to be perfect until we get to heaven, but the Lord wants to perfect that which concerns us, and the one who began a good work in us wants to carry it on unto completion. Now, let's continue with the third thing. Genuine Christians also have this distinctive love that I alluded to earlier. Let's continue with verses 7 and 8. John said, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Now, all of that sounds a little like a riddle, doesn't it? He says, I'm not writing you a new command, yet I am writing you a new command. What does John mean? There is virtual agreement among commentators and scholars that John here is talking about the command to love one another. That's an old command. For example, in the very next book of the Bible, or the next letter, 2 John, verse 5 says, And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that you love one another. That's an old command. It's been around since the days of the Old Testament. But what is the new command? Well, John 13, verse 34, is the words of Jesus, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. John was using a kind of riddle to emphasize the point. He was saying, I'm not telling you something new, but something old, love one another. And I'm not telling you something old, but something new, love one another. The command to love one another went back to the Old Testament where the two greatest commands were to love God and to love one another. But when Jesus came, he personified love and made it available to us in a fresh way by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, 5 says God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It has been gushed into our hearts, literally, by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We're not very good at loving God and others in our own fallen, sinful personalities. But when we are yielded to and walking with and filled with the Holy Spirit, the love of God is spread abroad in our hearts, and we are able to love even the unlovable. One commentator said, To walk as Christ walked is to put into practice the old command and to make it new, ever new, and ever fresh, as love is as old as humanity and as fresh as every new experience. Recently, I read a fascinating article by Carl Fraze, who leads a Christian ministry called Olive Tree Media. The story was about Carl's father, Hans, who was born in Germany in 1932. Like all young people of that era, he was in the Hitler Youth Movement, though not by choice. When he was 11 years old, he was put on a train with other children to be taken away to fight in the war. But his mother bravely pulled him off the train. If she had been caught, both of them would have been killed. But they both survived the war. After the war, Hans snuck out at night to steal potatoes to keep his family alive. 
1953, he emigrated to Australia, met a woman named Florence, and got married. But inside he was full of turmoil. He said there were dark spots inside of him because of his family's dysfunction and his upbringing and the Hitler and Nazi movements. His relationships, he said, were unhealthy and dysfunctional. And then a new pastor came to their town who had been influenced by the Billy Graham Crusades. This man held an evangelistic mission, and Hans attended. During the course of the meeting, Hans trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior. And here's what he said. He said that he spent the next day working on the farm, but as, returned home, but as he returned home to their property, he said, going home that night seemed to be something special. Two boys came running to meet me, and hand in hand we walked home. Flora seemed to have a different aura about her. Things just seemed to be different and a pleasure to be in. But the truth was, at that moment, I had no idea what it was about or the reason for it. As time went on, Hans realized that the difference happening in his life was that Jesus had come into his heart and was beginning to teach him how to truly love life and to love God and to love himself and to love others. That's the difference the Lord makes. Now, John goes on to make this explicit in the last part of the paragraph. Look at this in chapter 2, 1 John 2, beginning with verse 9. He said, Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Here again, John is talking about the deserters, about those who are leaving the church. They were rejecting the implications of the Gospel of John, which the apostle had recently published. John was saying, Those who are deconstructing their faith and rejecting their true identity in Christ and refusing the lordship of Christ and leaving the church are walking in darkness. They cannot be channels of his love. They don't even know what they are doing or where they are going. He said to his people, they don't love you, but because you belong to Christ, you have an assured faith, an improved life, and a distinctive love. You are walking in the light as he is in the light. You have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin. This is a good time to ask yourself if you are certain that you know Christ as Savior. This is really a part of my own testimony. I don't remember a time when I wasn't trusting Jesus as Savior. I grew up in a very gospel-filled family and church, and from infancy, I heard about the Lord Jesus. I grew up praying and reading my Bible and feeling that I had a relationship with Christ. But then when I was about 12 years old, an evangelist came to our church and preached about the danger of thinking you're saved when, in fact, you are not. Some people have a false assurance of salvation. They are cultural Christians. Maybe they have a gospel background. Maybe they go to church. Maybe they've been baptized, but their lives have never really been touched and transformed by the blood of Christ. And this man stood in the pulpit and told us we needed to make sure and to know for sure. Well, I went home that evening very troubled. 
What if I'm not really a Christian? I thought. I was too shy to talk to anybody about it, but I went into the bathroom, which I knew was private, and knelt down and prayed something like this. Dear Lord, I think that I'm a Christian, and if I am, I thank you. But if I'm not, I want to become your child right now. Please, if you're not already in my heart, come in right now. And I got up, left the bathroom, and have felt assurance of my salvation ever since. Perhaps someone listening needs to do the same. Nail it down. Make sure. And let the Lord Jesus Christ give you what John is talking about in this paragraph, an assured faith, an improved life, and a distinctive love. Thank you for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. And remember to check out my two books. They both are called Calm Your Anxiety, but they have different subtitles, and they'll, they're found wherever you buy books or soon at my own website, robertjmorgan.com. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company Clearly Media. Audio editing is by Jared Brummett. Editorial supervision is by Sherry Anderson. And Luke Tyler takes each of these episodes, condenses them, adds an opening outline, and posts them as blogs on my website. Music is by Jordan Davis. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And may God be with you until we meet again.